James chapter 1. And in the past few weeks, we've, um, with the exception of last week being Christmas, we tried to direct our minds towards the birth of Christ and the extraordinary blessing that that is and was. Prior to that, um, we began what has become a series of sermons, though not initially intended necessarily to do so, about silent sin. Um, We titled what was meant to be one or two sermons, it's now turned into more of that, um, Six Silent Sins. And by silent, not meant just necessarily hidden, although that's a part of it, Um, but in addition to being hidden, sometimes it's those that are open, but we just don't talk about them for a variety of reasons um, that, um, thank you. And so today uh, we come to our third, our first one um, that we discussed a few weeks ago was sexual sin. Following that, we talked about addiction and self-control, being two sins, both of those sermons being different sins. And so this morning, we're going to continue on that series of sermons about six silent sins, and we're on number three, and we're going to take for a reading today, verse 21 through verse 27 in James chapter 1. So this is James writing here in, in, excuse me, and there were, I really struggled this week to pick exactly what scripture reading I was going to take because as I was studying, I just kept writing down more scripture and more scripture and more scripture. And though I think that can be helpful to prove that it is biblical, sometimes when you get so looking all different places it may unintentionally impede the major point that you're trying to make. And so I feel inclined this morning, although I'm sure as we go through these verses, you're going to think of many scriptures that will support this text. We're going to try to stick fairly closely to this text this morning and pray that it would do some good for all of us. Verse 21, James chapter 1. Wherefore, lay apart all filthiness, superfluity, Of naughtiness. That's a lot of words there. All that means is uncleanness and wickedness. All right, Uh, but that's a lot of a lot of words there. So, lay aside all uncleanness and all filthiness or wickedness, and receive with meekness the engrafted word, which is able to save your souls. But be ye doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. For if any man be a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like unto a man beholding his natural face in a glass. For he beholdeth himself and goeth his way, and straightway forgetteth what manner of man he was. But whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty and continueth therein, he, being not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this man shall be blessed in his deed." If any man among you seem to be religious, and bridleth not his tongue, but deceiveth his own heart, this man's religion is vain. Pure religion, and undefiled before God and the Father, is this, to visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction, 
and to keep himself unspotted from the world. All right, so um, that's the conclusion of our reading this morning. And if I made some mistakes, I apologize. But the consideration we're going to place before you today is the sin of inaction. The sin of inaction. Now, this one for me this week is, well, let me back up. For a number of weeks, I have dreaded this one. Um, There are some things that we can say in humility, that's not a sin that has a hold of me. Not that it couldn't. Not that periodically we've not not have struggled with certain things, but there are some sins that I think we can say in humility and with good conscience. That sin is one that fortunately I don't I don't have a struggle with. There are others which we can't say that about. And it is particularly difficult when one has a hold of you to get up and tell people about it in themselves. And I'm very mindful of that this morning as I've thought about this scripture and thought about this message today. And and I want to say that before we get started. Now, we're just going to begin this morning by looking straight at the text and pointing out some things at the text that I hope will be helpful to you. So James is starting his reading here. And in verse 21, he tells us to do kind of two things. We kind of translated the one and that is, in short, put away sin. So if there is still lingering lifestyle sin in your life that is habitual, that you know that you're doing it, that it's intentional, first of all, as a Christian, put that away. And then he tells us, which is a very common thing in the scriptures, you'll notice the words put on and put off. Common sense tells us, and even gurus will tell you that are about lifestyle choices don't just get rid of something, put something in its place. Well, that's, that's actually a biblical concept. We put off some things, and then in its place, we put other things of righteousness on. And so here he's telling us, put all uncleanness and wickedness away, and place within you the engrafted word. Okay, so he's telling us, Don't do those things. Rather, direct our attention to the eternal truth or what I think is going to reveal later on, the gospel. The New Testament gospel message. Focus on those things while you're putting off the wickedness. But he wants to, in the remainder of the text, clarify something. And this is a really important point of clarity that he is making in the remainder of this text. He's not just saying... Don't do these things. Read your Bible. But he's wanting to show us that there is a really intricate, important detail about reading your Bible. It's not just about reading it. It's not just about understanding it per se, that you know sometimes I'll get back and I'll read some of the book of Isaiah or Daniel or Ezekiel or some of those books and you get into some chapters and you say, well, that's really tough. I don't even know what's happening here. So he's not just talking about being able to identify what you're actually reading. But he begins to dig deeper on what it means to have the word engrafted in your heart. 
And at the core of engrafting the word in your heart, the sign that that is being done, that you have put off the uncleanness and that you are really allowing the word to be engrafted in you is that you become a doer and not a hearer only. That is when you know that your pursuit of God and pursuit of his word is actually accomplishing what God intends. There's times in our culture today that well-intentioned Christian people will make this acknowledgement, I'm very busy, and so I'm going to set aside perhaps the New Year. Today's New Year's, and so you may have a New Year's declaration, a resolution that you've made, and one of them is to read your Bible more. That's a great resolution. But recognize it's not meant to be this, I'm going to read my devotional for 10 minutes in the morning and then move on. And that's what he's talking about here. Studying the scriptures, and he's actually going to use specifically that, what I believe to be the analogy in this, is that that is not what you're doing. You're not just reading to move on so that then you can clear your conscience of having looked at and perceived the Bible through your eyes. That's not what he wants us to do. So let's continue reading what he says here. But be ye doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. Now, here's what I was meaning by that last example. So verse 22, the last phrase is really important. Deceiving your own selves. Did you know that coming here, you coming here, and me coming here can be a very deceptive thing to ourselves? I mean, it can be really dangerous to come here. And here's the reason why. If you are out in sin, if you're saved by God's grace, and you're living a sinful life without regard to religion of any form, God through his Holy Spirit is going to convict you deeply. Your own conscience, which has been changed, if it has not been seared, will be sensitive to the effects of sin on yourself and other people. And so many times you see people who are truly been born again, but have gotten out and began to live with associations in the world. When you begin to talk to them about God or righteousness or church, you can discern in their spirit a conflict, a conviction, and a warfare that is going on within. And one of the greatest evidence to me of someone who is what we call often backslidden, though I don't know that that's necessarily a great term to use, but backslidden is that when you do bring these things up, they're not defiant, they're remorseful. They're avoidant. They're convicted. If you go to somebody in your family and says they've been saved and you begin to talk to them about the need to come to church and they're defiant and they're rebellious and they're self-justifying, I begin to wonder if the person's ever been born again to believe with, to, to begin with. But if you go to that same person and you can sense in their conscience and in their spirit that they are being gnawed from within and all you're doing by bringing it up is letting that out. That's a sign there's a warfare going on between their old man and their new man and it's fighting Here he tells us this, one of the dangers of being a hearer in the word, either in reading yourself or coming into the house of God, is that you could deceive yourself. You could be under the impression that you're a good, God-pleasing Christian because you can list all the things off. 
You can say, every morning before I start my day, I spend 30 minutes reading my Bible. I have a Bible study once a week with a group of men or a group of women that I have a good uh, relationship with. I homeschool. And part of what I do is I, I have curriculum that teaches these things. I have a private school, right? We have a private school here at the church, and I participate in that. We could do all, I come to church on Sunday mornings, Wednesday nights, and Sunday nights. And he, he gives this warning. He says, don't deceive yourself. Be careful. Because all of those things can be deceptive. What God wants is the word to get so deeply engrafted that it compels doing what it says. Have you ever seen this before? Maybe you've been guilty of it. I'm sure I know that I have. Substituting hearing for obedience. Here's another tricky one Satan really uses against us. Substituting powerful affection and emotion towards God for obedience. Have you ever seen people who live, or perhaps we can easily, when, when God gets brought up, let's say you're at work and somebody brings up something about how God doesn't exist and you begin to discuss with them the fact that he does exist and you begin to look to the scriptures and appeal to other things and you get real fired up, real emotional. And not, it's not necessarily a bad thing. That's not what I'm saying. But listen, that's not a substitute for obedience. You sit in the house of God and you feel a desire and a heartfelt emotion to worship. Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commandments, not feel how great that I am. Again, I don't want to, as many people have the tendency to do, especially uh, preachers that you can find on the internet and TV, they diminish feeling altogether. And that's not what I'm attempting to do. What I am attempting to do is say this, Powerful emotions, powerful feelings of affection towards God and church and religious things are not a substitute for what often becomes obedience to God's word. So our reading the Bible cannot substitute for being a doer. Our feelings cannot substitute for being a doer. And our our diligent uh, effort, but dryly carried out, cannot be a substitute for obedience. Or in other words, obligation. All right? I've done it before. I've seen preachers who I felt like were preaching out of obligation. They were getting up. They were speaking the truth. There was no technical error that I could find in their doctrine. But there was something radically missing. Here he tells us, he gives us this warning in verse 23. When you're a a listener of the word, when you're someone who is engaging in some degree, but a surface level, don't allow that to deceive you. Because truly what you'll find is obedience and doing is the sign of having the word engrafted in your heart. He continues, listen to what he says. For if any man be a hearer of the word... And not a doer, he is like unto a man beholding his natural face in a glass. For he beholdeth himself, and goeth his way. And immediately, that's what straightway means, forgetteth what manner of man he was. Now, this is the most clear example that I could think of. 
this, this scripture I've always struggled to fully understand. I think I understand it a little better than what I have in the last few weeks of studying this, this text. But I'm not sure. I still, I still struggle sometimes to, to, to grasp fully with confidence what this analogy is trying to indicate. But here's how I understand it to mean. So let's say, I'll give you comparison first, then I'll get to the example. You come into the house of God. You listen. You walk out. And you go back to living your life. And then you come back. And while you're here, you're attentive. You may take notes. You may have all the right signs and signals from outwardly. But then the moment you leave here, it's back to your life. And then you come here the next Sunday. And the same habit repeats over and over and over and over. The word preached is not intended to be treated that way. The word studied is not intended to be one of the things that um, people... I remember having a friend who took a new job and it included a, a high pay raise. And it seemed at the surface level that the responsibilities were actually a little less And he was really excited. But then he learned something a little difficult about being on call. Your mind never leaves. He worked for a hospital. And his mind was constantly, he was getting text messages and phone calls. Sometimes at 10 o'clock at night or sometimes at 5 o'clock in the morning. And he was having to piecemeal together or patchwork together when somebody would call off at the last minute then he had to call somebody else and he could tell when they're in the middle of a holiday family get together they weren't wanting to leave that and they were a little resentful towards him for being that voice to call them from that and he realized yes in some ways the physical demands are much less but my mind is always there always concerned with what's going on And so he recognized that part of the differential in pay was the duress of my mind. And he said later on, if I had known what I know then, what I know now, I never would have taken the job to begin with because it's rather nice to go and put my hours in, clock out and not think about it until I'm driving there the next time. That's certainly the case. You see, the word of God is not meant to be the nine to five where you clock out. It's meant to be the other. Where you read it, and sometimes one word, one thought, one story grabs you. And it doesn't let go. And you think on it. And you, you, you take it, and I imagine someone having some kind of an object, and they've never seen it before, and they take it, and they just keep on looking at it, and turning it upside down, and, and seeing what its uses are, and then, and, and then pouring it underwater, and seeing if it does something different, and then dropping it on the ground, and see what happens, and, and putting it in certain places to see how it reacts to heat, or to whatever the thing is. It's, the Word of God is meant to be something that is highly engaged with. That doesn't leave us. And he's saying here in this example, it's like a person who goes to a mirror and sees themselves. What I thought of is actually uh, some of my sons when they wake up in the morning and their hair is all crazy and their breath is awful and their face looks disheveled and they've got indents in their forehead. And they look real quick very often when we're going to come to church in the morning and they look real quick and go, yep, looks great. And then they walk out. Right? And they're ready to go. And then we're looking at them saying, no, 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 no. That doesn't look okay. And so what do we do? We get water and we get various products. And we do. And sometimes some of the hair is kind of sticky. It won't stop doing what we don't want it to do. And so we have to apply more aggressive means to control it. 
That's what it's saying. It's like somebody who goes and looks in the mirror and sees themselves. Oh, I'm okay. I'm fine. And maybe the moment they see themselves, they recognize, yeah, my hair doesn't look so great. And yeah, my face is looking like this. And yeah, maybe I need to uh, do some different. Uh, I don't care. And they walk away and they've forgotten what they look like. And they walk out in the world and people are looking at them a little funny. Walking in the world and they don't look like the businessman or the businesswoman that they ought to be. Why? Because their appearance, they have forgotten what they look like. He gives this example. He that hears the word is like someone, and here's how I imagine in our modern day culture. You pick it up and you read the word and you get through James chapter 1. You say, okay, I've got my chapter 1 reading done for today. And you go on and it doesn't affect you. And so it told you, so we'll take verse 27. Pure religion is to visit the fatherless and the widows. We'll get to that here in a minute. Someone who's a doer of the word, someone who's having the word actively engrafted in their heart, they read that and they walk away and they're driving to work one morning and they think, when's the last time that I visit a widow in her distress? What is her distress? It's the same as the one that doesn't have parents. Loneliness. That's their distress. And they ask themselves as they're driving, when is the last time that I did that? They don't drop it. They say, well, yeah, you remember I visited so-and-so or I called so-and-so, but that was probably three months ago. I'm going to make sure it was three months ago. Oh, wait, no, that was, that was like a year and a half ago. That was their birthday, not this year. It was the previous year. Right? I'm just taking one example here. I'm not. It's someone who takes the word and it stays there. They don't just read it. Someone who, because then he contrasts that. And notice that the main, to me, the words that jumped out at me in verse 24. So look at verse 24. It says this. For he beholdeth himself and goeth his way. And straightway forgetteth. To me, there's a speed implied in that language. He beholdeth himself, so he looks at himself. And then he goes his way. And immediately forgets. Now contrast that to verse 25. Let's look at verse 25. He says this. But whoso looketh under the perfect law of liberty, the gospel, the scriptures, and continueth, therein was added. So notice he's, he's contrasting someone who looks, forgets, and leaves. Or leaves and forgets. Versus someone who looks... And continues therein. Let me tell you this. Sometimes the best Bible study you can have is not, I read a chapter a day. I finish the Bible in a year. It's, I have dwelt upon one verse for the last three weeks. And I'm looking at every word until I come to a satisfied place where God has revealed to me what it means. Sometimes that's a successful Bible. So somebody says to you, what are you doing for your devotional in the morning? Well, I'm only on the fourth word. Can't brag about that, can we? No, we can't. But it's because we're trying to learn how to do. I'm not saying that's the way that you have to do it. I'm just saying, I'm making a, trying to make that point here. Is it's, it's not about the checklist. 
He said it's someone who reads it, the perfect law of liberty, and continues therein. He being not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this man shall be blessed in his deed. What if, what if the preacher gets up and says, we all need to read our Bibles. You'll be blessed. And you say, well, you don't say this because we're not this um, blunt very often. Well, I've tried that and it just doesn't work, frankly. And when that's the case, when we read something in the scriptures or we hear an exhortation that we know to be true... And it's not leading to the promised conclusion God has given. Maybe it's not that God is failing. Maybe it's that we're employing his required actions incorrectly. You know, whenever I played sports, if you're trying to teach somebody how to do a jump shot and they do it wrong 10,000 times, it's going to be really difficult for them to break that habit. So is the case when somebody thinks they figured out how to, allow, how to sit and be a listener to the word, how to be a student of the word by themselves, and yet they're going about it wrong over and over. They're looking to hurry up and finish so they can go on with life. What if that's the wrong way? Here, verse 26 tells us something I want to look at very briefly. It says this. So the sin of inaction. So we have the word. We become aware of the truth of something. Now let's talk about two forms of inaction. Because what we're talking about this morning is the sin of not doing. And yet I would say this. It's an error to just read something and say, now I'm going to go do it right now. A lot of, especially young people, have done that and caused a lot of damage. Because as the scriptures identify, they have a zeal, but it's not according to knowledge. And so it's not just you read, visit the fatherless and the widows, and then you think of the first person you can and you rush to their house. It's not the way it works. Here, there's, if we're talking about the sin of inaction, I would say there's two parts that he's about to identify to the sin of inaction. There's a sin of reaction, and there's a sin of a lack of action. And here's what I mean. Look at verse 26. If any man among you seem to be religious and bridleth not his tongue, but deceiveth his own heart, this man's religion is vain, empty. So, let's just call it how he says it. He's talking about us. How do we know that? Because right at this moment, we all seem to be religious. We're all in church. We're all trying to do what's right. And I don't mean that as an insult. I'm just pointing out an obvious fact. We all seem to be religious because we're doing the religious exercise. And he says, but he doesn't bridle his tongue. So here, let me ask you this question. How do you react to your own sin? How do you react to your own sin? So the last couple of weeks, we've talked about sexual sin and addiction and self-control. And let's just... Speculate for a moment that you're sitting here and you're saying, okay, I'm guilty of that. I'm really guilty of that. Let's say you read the word on your own. And before we even get to that, let's get to religious exercises. Let's say you know as you're starting the new year, you're saying, I'm very deficient in my prayer life. It's meager. It's embarrassing. And I've tried to improve it, but it's just, it's just bad. 
Let's say the study of the scriptures. Let's say you say, you know what? I know that I ought to be instructing my family more. I know I, might, I should be a more active in this church teaching and being a, a central part of what this church believes in. Know and be able to explain it, but I don't. Let's talk about evangelism. Let's say that you are terrified to evangelize to somebody. Let's use what he's talking about here. Visiting the widows and those in need. We could go on and on with religious exercises. And let's say that you have identified in your own heart or God has convicted you. What what is it, God, that I'm not doing? And he says, your prayer life is awful and it's self-evident to you. Very often, here's how Satan works. He says this, well, then you need to feel bad. And so what you do is you, you feel really bad. And you do it for a given period of time. Two weeks, you just feel awful because you're terrible at praying. And then time, circumstance changes, and you just start to feel better. And the way I look at it, it's almost like I have paid my penance for forgiveness through my guilt. I've suffered for a while because I'm guilty of sin. And now that I've suffered well, I've paid for that and I can move on. And Satan can deceive us into thinking that. But let me ask you this. How do you actually react to a specific sin in your life? Do you seek to find a solution? Do you take steps to alleviate what you have done? So let's say you're not good at praying. Let me give you a piece of advice. Go find somebody that is and spend regular time praying with them. If you see somebody that you know has a deep and rich prayer life, how do you know that? Well, because when they pray, you can tell it's not surface level. There is a depth that they really are talking to the almighty God. And there is a sense that we as Christians can have that the Holy Spirit is indwelling that prayer and manifesting himself. And there is an awe and a fear and a holiness and a reverence surrounding that person's communion with God. And so you say to that person, listen, I'm really embarrassed to say this, and I don't know exactly where this is going to go, but would you meet me once a week in a place that is private that we might just pray together? Because I am not, I am very deficient in prayer. But I know it is vital to any vibrant Christian life. What about studying? Studying the Bible, you say, you know what? I read it and I don't remember anything. It just comes in one ear, out the other. Well, you find somebody that's been very effective at studying the Bible. And you say to them, would you help me? Would you help me? Would you meet me? Study the Bible with me. Because I need help. And I want help. And I want to remedy that which is wrong. Evangelism. And all you have to do is be around somebody like Paul Bryson for a few minutes to realize why he's an effective evangelist. I don't like being around him, be, be honest. It gets annoying how many people he talks to and I'm just trying to have a conversation with him, right? And I, I say that obviously sarcastically, but it's, it's so natural. Brother Phil Mayle. Many of you have been around him. I've traveled across the country with him. And it is very annoying. Right? Because we have a destination and a time frame. But every person looks sad and sullen and hurt and broken. 
I go into the restroom and I come out and he's crying, talking to them about the Lord. And that's not an exaggeration at all. And I watch the interaction. And in my own prayer life, I take that before God and I say, Lord, make me more like that. What actions, rather, what reaction do you have when God identifies sin in your life? It's like someone who is overspending. And they refuse to sit down and look at their checkbook. You're not going to get back in the black if you don't sit there and line item by line item go through. I had to do that with somebody one time. They were really in debt. And so they asked me for some help. So I sat down with them. And here's what I found was the reason why they had delayed for so many years and gone through so much bankruptcy and gone, is that they didn't like that uncomfortable feeling to see on paper what you're spending on what. Because when you realize you're spending five or $600 a month eating out, five or $600 on recreation, and all this discretionary spending that is completely unnecessary, and then what you're blaming is some good obligation. See, you see it, and you realize, no, i got to take steps to correct it. But those steps are painful because what it requires is for me to cut out that which brings me pleasure. You see, sin brings us pleasure. And sometimes I would say that we don't react to sin because rather than having a systematic approach to studying the Bible, we want to stream Netflix at night. And we know down deep it's going to cut into that. That video game time is not going to be a free-for-all. That all these time that I spend scrolling and scrolling and scrolling mindlessly is going to be encroached upon. And so... If I obligate myself, and that's the, that is the anthem of my generation, do not obligate yourself. Because if you obligate yourself, it requires self-discipline. If it requires self-discipline, it may require you to sacrifice something that gives you pleasure. That's hard. But what about deeper sin? How do you react to deeper sin in your life? Systematic sin in your life. Your spending habits, your marriage, disobedient children, those things that are not a cursory, I just need to take this off and put this on, but are the underbelly, the framework of what our life has become. And we identify as as the preacher preaches, as we go through Bible study, as you read the scriptures and you see my framework is broken. Now, let me say this. That takes a whole lot of humility to do that. Because as we age, we get more resolved that the way we are living life is the right way. That I have figured out something about marriage, about child rearing, about all these things that I have to be right. And so when someone, you know, you know you have a good friend when you can say this. And this is somebody just told me this yesterday. They said, You need to have friends close enough to you. This is somebody in my age group said, you need to have friends close enough to you that you can say, I know I have blind spots in my parenting. Tell me what they are. That's inviting something scary, isn't it? 
because we're very sensitive to how we all do something like that as a part of the framework of our life. And so it takes an incredible amount of humility for someone to say, lay it on me, let me know. And you don't do that to anybody. You do that to somebody who does this. They may tear down, but they tear down for one purpose, to build back up. That's the only reason they tear down. They never tear down so that their tower is bigger than your tower. So that their excellent architecture and engineering about parenting is, is discernible. They never do it for that reason. They only ever do it because they want you to have a strong, healthy family. The structures, when you see that the structures of your life are wrong, what actions do you take to remedy that sin? That's a reaction. That's a part, I think, of what he's talking about in 26. If you don't bridle your tongue, you know your tongue's out of control. He tells us two chapters later, every man's tongue is out of control. We can control the great uh, ships of the world. We can control the great animals of the world through a bridle, but we can't control the tongue. He's talking about what your reaction to sin. And then he gets to verse 26, and, or excuse me, 27, and he talks about the pursuit of righteousness. So one is the reaction to sin. That's a form of inaction in us that can be sinful. I know I sin, but I don't do anything about it. Then here's another one. I want to pursue righteousness. So he tells us what pure religion is. To visit the fatherless and the widows and their affliction. I think it's going to be impossible to have a... um, I don't want to say, I don't want to exaggerate here. I would focus on your reaction to sin before you begin your, your strong pursuit of righteousness. You have to do both at the same time, to some degree. But very often, if we have a, a sin that is built into the fabric of our life and our lifestyle and our family, and then we think we're going to go change the world through our pursuits of righteousness, it's not going to happen. But here he talks about going and seeking, and, and doing things that nobody, and, and here's what I want to say, if you, if you don't go help a child who's a foster kid, nobody's going to point their finger at you and say, you're a sinner. Right? Because there's very often the sin of inaction is camouflaged. If I just don't do something, so take, for example, if I don't say something to somebody, you've all had friends that needed to be talked to. They were living in sin. They really needed a friend to come talk to them. And if you're like me, there's many friends, I just haven't done it. And nobody will ever look and point at me and say, you sinner, look at all the wrong that you did for not going and talking to them. And yet God knows. God knows the consequences of inaction when no man does. God knows the consequences of not pursuing lost people. Yes, we may never make that friend mad. Yes, we may never experience the natural consequences and emotions that come out of them initially. But what if God is wanting us to plant seeds in their heart that may eventually reveal the truth to them? Here, 
there are people today, I'll just be blunt, exactly what I'm thinking about. You know those people on the overpass in town? Stay at the overpass over 65. You know those people? I want to use them as a symbol, okay? They're the same people. I don't know how long they've been there, months they've been there. I would presume them, like many people, are very broken. You ever pass by broken people like that? I always feel, and and I'm speaking off the cuff here, so be patient with it. I always feel very hesitant about giving them anything. And I've, I've gone down the, the whole rabbit hole of, you know, doing it and the rabbit hole of not doing it. And I come to the same uncomfortable conclusion both times. Because what I recognize is they don't just need $20. Or they don't just meet, need me to assume, well, you're probably going to go spend it on drugs anyway. None of that's a fix. The problem. Truly what they need, a lot of them, broken people, is for somebody to come and help them put their life back together. If you've ever been on, on the ground level of trying to help somebody who's broken put their life back together, it's exhausting. It's, it doesn't give you fuzzy feelings inside. When you see sin, and you see reoccurring sin, and you see the lies, and you see the ugly, and yet... We'll make this assumption here. There's a few of those broken people who really want their life to be put back together. That's being a doer of the word. So why don't we do that? So we could play the game of um, percentages. We could say, well, one time I heard a news report that 80% of those people are frauds anyway. Okay, let's just say that's true. What about those 20%? What about down here, the Salvation Army with all the drug addicts and the alcoholics? What about Potter's home in town? What about the people in your own circle that you know about distantly who've just gone through divorce? Who have just been excommunicated from their church? Who, what about all those people? Have you ever experienced somebody that you really loved getting stuck by one of Satan's darts and that dart ruins their life? And before that dart ruined their life, you saw it all coming. Have you ever seen that? Have you ever seen a marriage that was on the fritz and you could see all these unhealthy signs? And... You didn't say anything. You didn't say anything. You didn't say anything. You didn't do anything. And then the whole thing just falls apart. And now you're 20 years later, and the kids are off doing awful things because of that experience they had growing up, and the people's lives are just crazy. And you tend to occasionally bring up with your spouse, man, it's just, I, I saw it coming. I've had that happen to me, I don't know, three or four times. 
I'm 35 years old, and I've had that happen to me three or four times. I feel very conflicted about it. Because there was one or two, at least one or two of those three or four situations. There's four that comes to my mind. Two of those situations, I feel like I should have said something. That's a risk. That's a judgment call. Maybe I'm wrong, but I feel like I should have said something. And now when I see the brokenness throughout the lives of all the people that were affected, there's just a part in my spirit that feels a little bit responsible. Not entirely. Because 95% of what's going to happen after that is up to the people involved. But I had just a little smidgen of the pie that I felt like God made me responsible for as someone who loved them to act. And I can't help whenever I think about those people and I pray for those people and I see the brokenness in their lives to just pray, Lord, forgive me for that. Action. Action. That we would pursue righteousness. This morning, if you think you're hurting, I'm hurting too. The last thing that I want to be in this life is someone who fills a role that the world applauds. I have all my boxes checked and I miss the heart of pure religion before God. You know, there's this, there's this silly thing today that people say, I'm not religious, I'm spiritual. Well, Jesus was religious and spiritual. And he advocates here being religious. But he doesn't advocate empty religion. He advocates pure and undefiled religion before God, which at the core is doing what he says. So what do we do? And this is where I'm going to close today. Why don't we do? Like, what is it? Let's just suppose that I have had four experiences in the past where I felt like I should have spoke up. And let's just suppose that there's another one happening right now. There's not, but let's say that there is. And I start seeing these warning signs. And I begin to pray for my friends. Whoever it is that's going through this troubled time, whatever, whatever the trouble is. I just sense something's not right, Lord. And I could relegate it to just a footnote in my prayer request life. But it, it bubbles up, you know, it just won't go away. And so I think what most people do is they take it and they begin to analyze the situation and say, well, it's likely they're not going to hear me because of this reason and that reason. And what if I say this and they respond that way? And we start to do that. I would contend that none of that is what we should do. None of all the analysis, because at the end, that's your wisdom. Based on your very, very, very limited, finite understanding of what is truly going on. And what's most often true when people have problems is it's like an iceberg. The majority of it's under the surface. You don't see any of it. So here's often why I pray. God... Give me the courage to do something if something is what I need to do. Because what prevents me from acting 
in my reaction to sin or my pursuit of righteousness is fear. And that fear is a derivative of what is unknown. What if I go down the Salvation Army to talk to these people who have addiction problems and, and it's awkward and they say and they cuss a whole bunch and they say all these things. What am I going to say and what am I going to do and how am I going to react? And all of those questions, Satan, I believe, surrounds in my mind the Salvation Army with all of those questions and I say, dangerous place. It's like he puts a fence up around the Salvation Army in my heart and I say, I can't go there because it's dangerous. So then it's just blocked off in my mind and I don't even think about it anymore. And I say, okay, Potter's Children's Home. They're a different denomination than we are, you know? And so, I don't know, there's just, there might be red tape. What if I have to get a background check? What if I have to go and, and take a class or two to even have entrance in there? I just thought, I'm just going to put a block around that because it's just, there's a fence up now. And it is amazing in our own hearts how many fences that we can put up around everybody and everything to the point where we don't do anything. Fear. Here's another one. Laziness. Helping people is hard. Takes work. Some people are lazy. Don't want to do the work. Priorities. Priorities. If there's... I thought of this. If if there's a verse in the Bible that would convict me about busyness being a sin, it's this one. The analogy right there, busyness is a sin. And if you didn't believe that, I hope this verse convinces you different. Because if you're super busy, that means the only thing you can do is take a glance in the mirror of righteousness and then run away to all the other things. You can't continue therein. Because all the other things are pulling at you. Some people don't want to change the priorities. Here this morning, some people have pride. Here's the pride. Here's why it is. They have long been a herald against doing those things. They've opposed those things. They've they've built up high fences and high walls as to why we shouldn't and couldn't do those things. And to then go and do them would be a sign that you were wrong before. And if you're wrong then you're not perfect in the eyes of the world. Somebody maybe that had the idea could say, well, I told you so. And God forbid anybody say that to me and be right about it. Right? The other one is this, emotion. Emotion. Emotion, more often than not, controls, I believe, our reaction to sin and our lack of pursuing righteousness. Whatever the emotion This morning, there's a silent sin called inaction. It has a fortress behind passionate beliefs, doctrinal orthodoxy. It has a fortress behind powerful emotions. And all of those things disguise themselves for true action. Then, have you ever noticed this? Those people who do those actions are very comfortable doing them. Here's what I mean. You've never been to, say, a prison to preach. Prison to talk to inmates. Alcoholics Anonymous meeting. Children who have been abused. You've never never been to a widow's house. 
it feels really scary to go for the first time. And usually what is the case is you go with somebody who's been a lot. And what I've always laughed at myself is when I go the first time to do one of those things, I'm shaking and shivering in my boots, and that person who goes all the time seems like that's the most comfortable place in the world to them. Because what you realize is that maybe those walls don't exist, and those people are not as intimidating as what Satan has made them out to be. Maybe God is sending me here because this is exactly where I'm supposed to be. Action. Now lies the final question. That is this. What are you going to do about it? Today, what are you going to do about it? Will you be that man or woman that heard what I said today? Paid your penance and emotional guilt? Walked away? And put your mind on what's for lunch. Or, well, tonight you open up your Bible, you go back to James, and you say, Lord, that, that, I'm scared. If anything ever gets done, you know this, you're, you're all professional people who have worked jobs. Things get done when you put together steps to accomplish them. There's been something that has been grossly exaggerated amongst, at times, people of our faith, and that is that every act of obedience has to be some spontaneous action. Well, the Lord told me to do it, so I just did it. That is true. That can work that way. It often works that way. I find more often it doesn't work that way. Imagine if I did that before my sermons. Some of you think, well, you do, I bet. (laughs) I'm just going to get up there, and whatever comes out, comes out. What if you did that at your job? What if you're homeschooling and you say, you know, I haven't looked at any curriculum. I'm just going to teach them about math today. You know, and I know that wouldn't work. So you lack prayer. What are you going to do about it today? What are you going to implement? What are you going to change? That's our message this morning. I hope you know I stand with you in its convicting meaning. It's convicting, but it's a silent sin, and it's a killer. It's a killer of churches, it's a killer of families, it's a killer of people. Certainly, God wants us to act. I hope he'll help us to do that moving forward in our reaction to sin and our pursuit of righteousness. That's our message this morning.